Well, welcome to this week's episode of The Green Blob. And this week, we have a very special interview from Helen Adams, a IPCC author, the Head of Science Engagement at COP26, and a Senior Lecturer at King's College London in the Geography Department. So that's very exciting. And we have my co-host Will here with us. Say hi. hi. <laughs> I'm back. As ever. He is back. How are you doing, Will? Yeah, I'm doing well. Yeah. Again, more terrorism. In my module, there's nothing much to say about that. It's been, it's been interesting. Got David Orman next week. Not that means anything to anyone. Well, but, uh, who, who's David Orman? So he was. Oh, don't you dare question me this. So he <laughs> is a very, he's a very, very senior civil servant during, um, from what I know, during the sort of early noughties, and he was very much sort of oversaw a lot of the response in Britain to 9/11 and the emergence of Islamic terrorism. So that's his, sort of his big thing. So he's he's basically God on my course. Everyone everyone <laughs> loves him and all praise him. But he's a bit yeah, he's just a very nice normal normal bloke. Fantastic. Background. Wow. That sounds very interesting. So from <laughs> from Will's God to IPCC authors to uh, analysis of the mini budget from yesterday. On with this week's episode of the Green Blob. The Green Blob. The attack on nature is real. We should be very proud of the cleanliness of British politics. And today I'm going to be pouring actual liquid human onto a Captain Tom Memorial. They're on a gravy train for heaven's sake. It's the tofu eating, karate. Do you think there's any coming back from this? I don't think so. We must use this opportunity to create a more equal world. The Green Blob. Right, so we're starting off this week by talking about the autumn statement, which is, so Jeremy Hunt, the new Chancellor, or not that new, because he was Chancellor under Liz Truss, but politics is very quick at the moment. It just made me think, actually, before, before the, the jingle, did I introduce it as the mini-budget? I think you did introduce yeah, the mini-budget. Yeah, I think yeah. I did, yeah. Sorry, the, the autumn statement. Yeah. It's too confusing, it's too confusing. Anyways. My mind's just always on the mini-budget. <laughs> yeah, so it was the autumn statement yesterday which is a annual update on sort of public expenditure and what the government's doing. Full disclosure, I have very little background in anything to do with economics or public spending, so it's been quite interesting. It's the first uh, autumn statement or budget I've actually listened to in full. So, so this is a cutting-edge analysis, blobbers, oh, don't, don't, you, don't you worry. <laughs> this one is very much seen as being very important because of the um, disaster that's surrounding the mini-budget, and this is Jeremy Hunt, the new Chancellor, in many ways trying to correct the British economy. And so you said you listened to the whole statement. Yes. Was that like a couple of minutes or It was a I think it was about an hour. I wasn't wow. really I wasn't really I was I was working with it on in the background. Okay. I think it moment wasn't that long. It wasn't that, Cause, cause that maybe this is something uh bothers you, you already know, but that wasn't something I was aware that when a, uh, an autumn statement or a budget, a big budget was done, they kinda gave this very long speech. Yeah. So I tuned in myself to listen and it was Rachel Rees kind of giving her rebuttal as yes. it were um, and I thought oh like she must just be like asking a question or something and then she just kept going and going I was like oh no this is actually like a full on speech yes both of them are quite long statements mm. um, there's a whole pdf I found of the entire budget with all the all the calculations and stuff in it which I say like highly glyphs to me um, but the main thing I was looking at was to do with obviously energy and the environment and any promises or changes towards the government. Um, blobbish news. Blobbish news, indeed. <laughs> so the three big things I, I took away from it was so an update on how the government's getting revenue from energy companies. So we've already a lot of talk this year about windfall taxes and so forth. 
and then also energy support because of the massive inc increase in energy prices due to the war in Ukraine, which has disrupted oil and gas supplies from Russia and also through Ukraine. And then the third thing, which I also picked up on, was about new energy projects, because obviously there's a big push um, across Europe to invest in renewable energy sources mm. to reduce our... Well, it's been a hot reliance. topic of debate, hasn't it? Because obviously we had uh, Neil McCauley on yes. a few, few episodes ago Indeed. to talk about the size as well nuclear power plant and i believe that's not going ahead, that going ahead. No, no no that is going ahead it's confirmed. Sorry. Yeah, so that <laughs> that's was confirmed big, is going ahead that's that was what i meant big, that was so we'll cover the new energy projects first because it's quite short shockingly so the he remains committed the government remains committed to the glasgow pact which is no surprise because it's there it's their oh. pact yeah <laughs> it'd be kind of awkward if they pulled out of it. exactly so they're still keeping to the 1.5 and um increase and so forth and as you say, so the new nuclear power plant going to be built with, I believe EDF is the major um, partner in that, which is a French energy company. I think mm -hmm. it's a state company, because I think they Yeah, it is, it, is, it is a state one. Yeah. Um, so that's that's now, that next couple of weeks are going to flush out all the details of that, but that's going ahead. So that's obviously to try and mm. get a new source of energy other than... I saw a really good debate around that on Politics Live. Mm. And basically the argument that, not only for the reasons we discussed with Neil a few episodes ago, mm. But it's not going to, you know, we need energy now mm. and it's going to take, you know, years into the oh, future yeah. to get this energy from nuclear. So actually, in terms of climate change, ecological, like environmental issues and actually kind of helping people right now, it'd be much better to invest in renewable energy and scale up solar and wind. Yeah. It's, well, that seems to be one side of the debate. Well, no, but I think, as you say, because the big, the big pressure is now is to escalate the transition away from gas and oil and as you say if you're building a nuclear power plant it's going to take several years and it'll probably mm. take longer than anyone expects if you have a budget and all the rest of it and it's something we should have done years ago because a clip which um, became very popular a few months ago of Nick Clegg when he was Deputy Prime Minister in the early 2010s saying oh we don't need to build a new power plant it won't be online until 2022 and everyone was like yeah we could have done with that <laughs> this year <laughs> yeah um, so yeah. again it's this mm, well yeah and I, I suppose um, that is the other side of the debate, isn't it? Is that it's a more reliable, steady source of energy, I believe. Whereas, although battery capacities are increasing, renew renewables are becoming more reliable, mm. there is that question somewhat that remains around them. Well, renewables generated 40% of the UK's electricity last year. I mm. think it's a, one of those stats which stands out there. It is a considerable amount Despite a lot of people um, being quite critical of wind and so saying, oh, it doesn't, like, what happens when the wind doesn't blow? What happens when the sun doesn't shine? So, no, it's all 40% of the UK energy mix yeah, is from renewables. Huge, huge proportion. And we can, again, increase that higher if we carry I don't know about you, but that when I hear that stat, it makes me think back to year nine geography when we started renewables yeah. and it was like, I don't know, 5% of our electricity. Mm. I don't know. It was a small number yeah, right. and it kind of seemed very insignificant and it seems like something that was a nice idea but that would never happen mm. and now it's obviously all the, the focus and the push yeah it's normalised in mm. a big way it lost, I, I well it's also the cheapest one because at yeah. the time when I was learning that you know, at GCSE mm. um, the biggest thing against it was how expensive it was mm. and now it's the cheapest form and it's still kind of got these barriers to being yeah. kind of implemented and upscaled mm. so Grant Shapps, who's a new business secretary, in the next couple of weeks is going to announce a new um, update on the energy platform through the 
business department. So that's something I took away from the budget, which I think keep an eye out for, which we probably will discuss. Okay. Because as we said before, Grant Sharps is quite pro um, fighting climate change and hopefully will be very different from his predecessor, Jacob mm. Smog. Well, that, perhaps this could be an episode. Is Grant Sharps a blobber or not? <laughs> reach out see if we can get mm, him on the yeah podcast. see if we can get him on the podcast that'd be good <laughs> and then the other major thing to discuss from the budget i for, on this topic of energy is about the windfall taxes so labor has always been pushing for an increase to windfall tax so the energy profits levy which is the uh, tax is going to be extended to march 2028 and it's going to increase by 10 percent to 35 percent of excess profits and that's coming in January next year. We'll translate that into... So this <laughs> into is why, there's a lot of confusing numbers there. So, so basically, 35% of excess profits from energy, energy companies, yep. Shell and BP and so forth, in this country, will be taxed by the government. So 35% of whatever they have right. left over from their excess profits will go into the public coffers. So, quick maths. That's still 65% of excess profits you know they've already got yes. their normal amount of profits this is all excesses so there's quite a lot of excess still not being windfalled as it were what what's been labor's position on this are they are they in favor of stronger i'm not familiar i'm not i'm not aware actually i don't actually i should have looked into actually what rate labor are calling for i know they were calling for an extension so it's mm. been extended so that's part of it because liz trust was very against extending it so at least have extended it but the big question at the moment is actually how much excess profits are these companies generating because a lot of them reinvested ah i remember now yeah because it's all about the extent of these excess yes. profits they're generating absolutely i remember labor's position from watching rachel reeves yesterday the shadow chancellor yeah um which was she was saying there's loopholes as it were in the way the tories have designed the windfall tax mm. so anything that these companies are investing in the uk that then means they can't get taxed on that part of the excess profit yeah, and she was saying that this is investment that they're already making in the UK, so it just means they're going to get taxed less, whereas the Conservative position was, well, actually, we're incentivising investment in the UK, which is a good thing. Yeah, so it's very confusing, and it's one of those things, I think we just have to wait and see what happens in, in reality, mm. um, because it looks good on paper, oh yeah, 35%, it's over a third of their excess profits, so that's a lot, I think they were, so the expectation for this windfall tax and also a tax on energy generation, which we'll talk about in a second, is expected to raise fourteen billion pounds. A lot of money. It's a big aspect of their revenue. Yeah, I... but we don't know how much is that. Is it on paper? On really, paper. though, when you think this is excess profits mm. and how much people in this country, but you know, in many other countries, are, are struggling at the moment, and also, you know, we we see all the. We're going to talk about COP later, COP twenty seven in Egypt. Mm you know that that gap in finance for loss and damage and generally to increasing action on climate change and increasing ambition you know it's and you've got these oil companies profiting off worsening climate change and have been for decades it's mm. it's not right really is it and they've also so there's the big issue about the international aid budget and they are keeping it 0.5 percent despite the government um promising yes. it 0.7 percent so that's all sorts of aid and there's been lots of issues about that because a lot of people on the right in politics have been very critical of of spending money abroad and Britain is, is a major player mm. in the international aid scene um, and well, I, I, I saw it come up in um, PMQs on Wednesday of course it was deputy PMQs yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Dominic Raab kind of slandering um, oh I should know her name Angela Rayner Angela Rayner thank you 
and saying, oh, she, this lady is in favour of sending billions of pounds to you know, developing countries to help with climate change, as if that was a bad thing. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, depending on your position, you might think that's a bad thing. Um, it's, it's honestly, I did a module about Russian soft power a few years ago, and it's so important and very proud thing that Britain is making a real effort to, to you see, loss and damage, in a way, loss and damages, and trying to be a, still be a big part of the world stage, mm. but be a positive force. So helping people out and yes. helping development projects and so forth, and the fact that they're at this. Well, I mean, you can imagine time. it's quite important for your your image yeah, internationally. Because exactly. it keeps. Because again, if you go to some country and you help them out, they're probably more likely to help you and build good relationships. Mm. So and I, I suppose at things where we need this kind of global cooperation and collaboration exactly. on something like climate change, that that's actually really significant. Mm. Because if you're going to these kind of global conferences and you're like, oh you guys haven't really been doing much to help out. You've been a bit silent on the world stage. That doesn't look good. No, especially when Russia and China obviously are making a real effort in Africa. And it's a big issue about that. And I'm not mm. going to go into it, but I think it's... Yeah, I was going to say that, that's a whole, whole other can no, of worms. I think, I think that's also, I think that's overplayed and de- demonised those two countries. But it is a big, important issue to try and support everyone globally. And climate change is all... To, if we're going to tackle change, climate change, that's how we need to do it. Mm. Um, so yes, yeah, so the other thing, so as well as the increase in the windfall tax there's also a new 40% 45% windfall tax on energy generators so this includes nuclear wind and solar companies um, and this is going to go on till March 2028 oh, so wow. it's a long time <laughs> um, I believe this is also excess profits 45% so it's higher rate than the 35% on the gas and oil companies right so why are they taxing I, I... I I, I don't know anything about this, but why why are they taxing... I do remember hearing something about this on the news, but why are they taxing nuclear, wind, solar, you know, renewable, kind of zero carbon also. I think the argument is that they're also benefiting from, obviously, the Mm. price rises. They are, they are. But again, the argument... But why more then? I don't... See, this is one of those things where I have a little look, so I looked at... um, Yeah, this is one of those things where we're we're not specifically an expert on this. No, I think also, I wouldn't be surprised if it's, it's... it's government corridor stuff. There'd be reasons in Whitehall why this has all been carried out. And again, this was only yesterday, so we don't have all the details. But this, this is something that was expected yeah. to be announced. That, that's, a, that's a much better reason than me saying, oh, well, we're not experts on this. Yeah, all, all the details aren't out at the moment, blobbers. We'll, no. we'll get back to you on this. I hope you get back to you. But yeah, so it's a really interesting thing because I'm, I'm not in favour of, say, tax, as we are saying about all the reinvestment of profits and stuff. I mean, these are the, these are the fields that will be our future in energy generation. Mm. Um, so well, you, you think question. that although yes they are benefiting off this energy crisis they're companies where you hope that you know, we, we, we want more of that if anything that's not a bad thing they have more profits because hopefully then they're taking those profits and not pocketing it themselves and they're investing it I mean you, you don't know but also but, but then if they're making more money then the government doesn't need to subsidise them as much you could argue from a from a more anti-state interventionist angle which is yeah. when it's weird that which is a very is, kind of right kind of yeah which I doubt is a, is a that sort of a smaller state yeah yeah so it's odd that you've got conservative government taking their money away but then obviously it's it's going for other things like welfare and so forth and also the energy support package so we'll just finish off the energy support package so at the moment um the prices are free frozen till april so this was this trust's announcement um and she viewed it to carry on for two years but she she was originally going to do two years at the current freezing point but because of the mini budget because that's what she announced the mini budget that blew up so then with Jeremy Hunt, she announced it would just be at this current rate till April and then they'd revise it. So Jeremy Hunt with Rishi Sunak has now announced that from April 2023 to 2024, 
it's going to be still going to be support in place, but it's going to be about roughly for each household £500 less. So currently the average bills is £2,500 a year for average household and energy usage cost. It's going to be from April 2023 to April 2024, £3,000. Yeah, so it's going up. So it's going up. There's £500 less support. And then, then this is the other thing, because it's not actually £500, it's £900, because you're not getting the £400 energy rebate ah okay. so that's been the whole thing that i've seen that they're kind of saying oh you know it's just 500 pounds which is obviously still a lot yes um but actually you're not getting this 400 pounds anymore either okay so yes. it's actually a jump from 900 ah. but there's also going to be more targeted support for people on benefits um pensioners and people with disabilities because yeah. it's a big issue in the news lately about people who who need um, medical equipment to stay alive and their children and obviously the massive drain on of energy and that's costing mm. lots of families a lot um, so I've not seen much um, evaluation of whether these support amounts have announced for these families are going to be mm. enough. But and just trying to segue this into a more blobbish kind of perspective, Yes. because um, it's all very financial and economic, which is obviously very important. Uh, well, I suppose in one way, it's, this crisis means there's less funding and money for climate change nature stuff. But what I was going to say was in, from a more kind of people's perspective, was that that kind of lower standard of living that the OBS have predicted for mm. kind of the next few years will affect people's mental health. It will affect people's obviously income, how much money they have. And that means their research generally shows that people will make kind of higher carbon life choices yes. as a result. Because, you know, for example, I'm going to Edinburgh today. It's more expensive to get the train than it is to fly. Mm which seems bizarre to me. <laughs> but, you know, people will be forced to perhaps choose these higher carbon options, which are cheaper. Yeah, exactly. You know, whether that's food or clothes or you know, whatever it is. And a big thing I took away from it, and Rachel Reed raised this point, was the fact that, as we talked before about Grant Shapps and his support for cladding and increasing insulation. Mm-hmm. So the big thing um, Jeremy Hunt was talking about is that Britain needs to focus on its energy independence, again, about its investment in renewables and not using foreign gas and oil, and energy efficiency, so about reducing how much energy we use and mm. be more smarter in how we do it. Um, and as I say, there's no announcement of any effort to try and reduce people's spending. It's, it's just, just about this support package. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I'm hoping Grant Shapps in a couple of weeks with this new announcement is going to announce something to try and that, 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 combat usage in that way. But that, Well, that whole insulation thing, it just seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. Whenever it comes up, everyone from kind of across the political spectrum who isn't kind of entrenched in this kind of tribal war between the Conservatives and Labour seems to say, well, yeah, it's a bit of a no-brainer. It's quite cheap to do, and it's going to make a big impact to people. So hopefully we see something there, because obviously all that energy being wasted uh, is a really big contributor to carbon emissions and climate change. So Jeremy Hunt announced that he hopes that by 2030 that the UK will reduce its current energy use by 15%, so relative to 2019 usage. And I think it's, so that's, say, good in a way, but I listened to a podcast and France have just announced that they're going to cut their their usage by 10% by 2024. So 2030, 15%, or 2024, which is two years away, by by 10. Mm. And that's, again, due because of how France has been really impacted by the energy crisis on the continent. Um, and they're making this much more drastic effort to reduce their usage. And I think that's the issue with Britain. Is I think we're a bit too comfortable. We're not really taking it as seriously as lots of... No, and the, and the other thing I see when comparisons between Britain and the continent in our kind of reaction to this energy crisis mm. has been that countries in mainland Europe have been encouraging people to like change their habits and yeah. decrease their energy use. Mm. 
there's been nothing from the government about how we as people can kind of change our behavior and try and use this energy ourselves it's been actually no you have the right to keep using the same amount of energy and we're going to subsidize that rather than actually let's all try and reduce our energy usage which kind of also seems a very logical and cheap approach to the problem i think the reason for that is because of the the crisis in the conservative party because liz trust is very um she she shot down jk reese mug was planning a public information campaign to try and get people to cut their funding but she Uh, stopped it I think it's this libertarian part of the Conservative Party where they don't want to be telling people what to do. That's interesting, though, because you wouldn't put you, Jacob Rees-Mogg as someone who wants a, you know, a nanny state. Yes. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. So I didn't say I didn't. I don't think many details of that plan were leaked at all, but it was it was at least leaked the fact that he he was blocked in making this this effort. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Ah, interesting. Well, now you've had our mini budget analysis. Um, like I mentioned at the start of the pod, we have a very special interview with uh, Helen Adams. Um, and yeah, let's give it a listen. The Green Blob. So, welcome to The Green Blob, Helen Adams. Helen is an environmental social scientist at King's College London and was the head of science engagement at COP26 in Glasgow. Thanks for taking the time to join me today. How are you, first of all? Great, thank you for having me. No, no problem at all. Um, it's nice to have another King's College London green blobber on the podcast. Uh, do you know what a green green blobber is? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It's um, just someone who kind of supports kind of more kind of urgent, kind of ambitious climate action, essentially. Um, yeah, it's all derived from when Jacob Rees-Mogg kind of coined the term green green blob as this kind of kind of just is the word homogeneous kind of you know just everyone's kind of lumped into one like we're all the same and we're not very diverse or you know we're just a bit of a downer so so yeah well I wanted to start with COP26 last year and with your experience there and so I wondered if you could tell us a little about what your role entailed uh, to give us a little bit of context. Yeah okay thank you yeah so I was sort of seconded for about 15 months to the the UK cabinet office which was where the um, the COP presidency, the UK COP presidency was based. So basically every year a new country takes over being president of, of the COP process, which is these, these, these annual kind of negotiations around commitments on reducing emissions and, and you know, carrying out adaptation and, and finding the finance for those activities. So UK were the presidents last year and they ended up being president for two years because of COVID. Um, and my role was to engage academics. And so it was, yeah, I suppose really super interesting in the same way that you would engage the youth or civil society or indigenous groups. My role was to try and get academics interested and supporting the kind of ambition of of the COP presidency. Um, I don't know how much you want to know about what the COP presidency's goals are. I suppose we'll get onto that. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's a great start. Thank you very much. And well, I suppose... So in your role trying to engage scientists, I can imagine generally people were quite, uh, scientists were quite receptive to that, or was there a bit of pushback? I I suppose as a scientist yourself, it gave you quite a unique position to speak to other scientists. Yeah, that's exactly it. It was super unique because I was, I was UK government, but I was also IPCC author. And so you have the legitimacy and the authenticity that comes with that, you know, especially when academics are, especially in um, the UK, Western Europe, quite suspicious of government and, and like to keep that distance between 
you know, government and, and science, you know, and their independence. Um, yeah, I think mostly people just didn't know how to be useful, wanted to be useful, weren't sure how to be useful. And then, you know, UK academics got together and formed this um, COP26 universities network where they basically joined together and they were really helpful because they were really responsive if we needed kind of academic input on X, Y and Z. I think the big challenge for me was engaging like globally, like how do you engage beyond the UK because we're presidency of a global process. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of went to big, big science organisations like the International Science Council or the World Meteorological Organisation who are kind of these these big high level kind of climate science or science policy organizations. But then it was also quite difficult because it came at a time when the UK cut its ODA, its overseas development assistance budget. And we cut a lot of funding to projects that were going on in low income countries where you'd really want to use those projects to engage with academics in the global south. But the UK at that point cut its funding. So it's quite tricky, especially if you're talking about adaptation, which is very close to development, to engage scientists on that at that point. Mm. You know, they were so there is rightly so of quite conflicting angry. narratives kind of coming out of the UK. In one sense, the government is saying this, and you're kind of trying to go to them and say something quite different, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's obviously different parts. It wasn't me that did it. But, you know, if I'm the spokesperson for government, that's who you're going to be angry at. And I think, but I think there was, like, the government... The presidency was trying to use its convening power to advance certain areas of climate science, you know, and that's what they were trying to do. Where is it that we can bring people together to really make a step change in certain areas? So, you know, we sort of focused on health. We focused on positive um, well, all, visions all of the, the research future. shows, and we had someone from Climate Outreach. I don't know if you've you've heard of them. Shows that yeah. kind of that kind of that positive message is. Uh, much more effective when trying to communicate climate change and kind of bring people on board uh, than the kind of those negative messages around you know how bad it is and those kind of narratives. Yeah, exactly. So I think you know I think some of the stuff the government was doing was really good, and then another piece of work was about communicating risk information better in the sense that you know you've got lots of people talking realistically about you know events that could, you know, radically change our kind of our ecosystems and change it, the way we produce food, our kind of, you know, where the world is safe or not. But how do you make that information kind of actionable by, you know, senior policymakers and heads of government is a very different question. You know, you, you know, you, you it's not going to be an apocalypse, not the end of the world. But yeah, there's going to be, you know, some serious stuff that has to serious security implications for countries, you know, say food security. How yeah. do you get how do you deliver that in a way that doesn't seem yeah, either, you know, just too fluffy or too in the future or, you know, because policymakers are really used to dealing with risk and will take actions based on, in you know, in uncertain conditions, but we don't seem to be doing it very well with climate change, you know? No, and I suppose that kind of leads me on to my next question, which was, as you know, there were reports this week about the record numbers of fossil fuel delegates at COP27, and I know it was the same last year in COP26. And I suppose you were kind of working within kind of one stakeholder group, as it were, scientists. But I wondered if you could give us an insight into what it's like when there's so many competing stakeholders, and some of them, you know, very uh, disruptive in trying to slow down action on climate change. And it, do you think that's perhaps a reason why? we haven't been able to move as quickly as we'd like with these things? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the strength of the UNFCCC process, the COPS, the Paris Agreement, you know, and the Paris Agreement that followed the Kyoto Protocol is that it involves everybody, you know, and, and it involves every country of the world. And some of those countries have, you know, big oil interests, ourselves included, right? Um, yeah. And I think they involve, in a sense, that the climate change, any climate change solution has to involve the oil companies in a way, right? Like they're, they're one of the, the players in this. I mean, I don't think there's two kind of parts to the COPs. There's the negotiations where the countries themselves, so representatives of every country will negotiate on different issues. So, you know, how much we're willing to reduce our emissions versus not so much anymore because countries do that themselves. But, you know, how are we going to manage this process? How are we going to make sure we don't double count emissions? How are we going to transfer funds to low income countries? All those kind of issues. That's one part where the countries sort out the nuts and bolts of this kind of process of emissions reduction and, and adaptation and finance. Then on the side, there's just a really big trade show. It's like COP is the world's biggest climate change trade show. And and there you have stalls by countries, you have stalls by companies. And, you know, and that's where the fossil fuel lobby will be. And yeah, do I agree that they should be there? No, but they're not. They're not in the room of the negotiations. I suppose right. you could argue they're in the corridors with them, okay. but it's it's almost a conference of two parts, you know, and um, the fossil fuels. I mean, but yeah, it's it's hard to take it seriously. I mean, you think about all the, the political issues that have been shown up by COP being in Egypt and, and mm. you know, the kind of Egyptian government's stance on certain topics. And yeah, do I think the oil companies should be there? No. Do I think there is a big element of greenwashing there? Yes. You know, but what what would replace it in a sense? Well, that was, um, we kind of discussed this on the podcast last week, uh, and that was kind of our answer that it's an imperfect system, but it's kind of the best one we've got. But it's really interesting to hear about those kind of two two different parts of the conference. I wasn't really aware of that. So perhaps when some narratives are coming out about it being a big trade show, perhaps those people aren't seeing kind of all the negotiations and all that kind of other part of the conference. Um, and so I guess a bit of a broader question on COP26 before we move on to COP27, uh, which you just ch- touched on, um, which was, I wondered if you felt what was achieved at COP26, you know, principally the Glasgow Climate Pact, but also, you know, lots of other agreements, such as the pledge by over 100 countries to halt and reverse deforestation by 2030, um, if it was a success overall. And I know that's quite a difficult thing to say, but, um, you know, as there always is, there's a lot of criticism as to what extent these agreements, kind of like you said, kind of transfer into actions and materialise in reality. Um, so, yeah, I just wondered what your take was on that. Yeah, I mean, it was it's a good question. I, I think it, within the bounds of what every COP does achieve, which is very little, and like you say, within the kind of caveat that what's agreed within the UNFCCC process, how much does that translate to action? I mean, everyone knows what they've got to do, pretty much everyone knows what's at stake if we don't do these things. But within the bounds of what, you know, this incremental, this tiny, tiny marginal progress that that the COPs make, I think it was a success. So if you're saying like in, in the context of what COPs can achieve, it was a success and that's important, but relatively speaking, very little kind of, is it still an effective process? 
When they were trying to think about the Paris Agreement, so in, when there was the COP in Copenhagen that was a failure, and basically the UNFCCC changed the way it did things from being like a really country government-driven process to almost trying more to orchestrate a process that involved many stakeholders, some of which were government, but you know some were regional entities, some were the private sector, civil society, understanding that governments aren't, necessarily the most powerful actor in this in this space to make the change. And so the UNFCCC has kind of almost acknowledged that, yeah, the negotiations themselves are only part, is part, a tiny part of the solution. It brings all the world's leaders, all the world's governments to the table to discuss these things. But, but yeah, it's, I mean, if you look at the trajectory of emissions and COPs, it's a straight line, isn't it? I mean, I suppose it's not an exponential curve, which is maybe a good thing, but, you know, I think, it's a, yeah, it's a tiny piece. It's not by no and, and even the UNFCCC by by changing this approach to to being a kind of multi-stakeholder, multi-institutional, and it even you know the UNFCCC basically countries aren't being held to a certain emission reduction that they were for the Kyoto Protocol. Countries determine that themselves now, right? And so that's the nationally determined contribution. So yeah, so like, where are the teeth? There are none, you know, because there can't be any. Who's going to hold a country to the world in the world to account? And so I think, I mean, I'm not speaking very straightforwardly here, but it's kind of this idea that the UNFCCC itself almost knows that it's, this is a problem bigger than countries and give bigger than governments, and actually that you can't hold governments to account or that the, the actors who can hold governments to account are diverse, but there isn't like you know, the head of the UN can't, yeah. you know, there's, tell them all off or whatever. There's not some government who can just go, well, you're not doing that and you're in trouble now. Exactly, exactly. So it's a really tricky situation. So, yeah, no, I think it really is, it, it, it's part of the solution. But, yeah, it's not, hmm. it's not been a silver bullet. There is no, and there actually, there is no silver bullet for climate change anyway. So, but, yeah, I think personally. Because I think, I think that's maybe it, isn't it? Is that perhaps do you think that people put too much, emphasis on COP to kind of be the silver bullet where right this is the big convention the big event everyone's gathering together and there should be some really big steps forward and it's perhaps that perception which is kind of setting itself up for failure like it it can never be a success yeah I mean that's it and every time they say this is our last best chance and that really annoys me it's our last best chance you know it's like well last year was and the year Mm. before was you know it's it's not this is a process and I, th- and I think I feel about this, I feel the same way about climate change in general, in the sense that, yeah, it's it's not we miss 1.5 degrees and then that's game over. You know, we have to stop it at 1.6 degrees or even 1.55 degrees temperature rise, right? This is a, we, you know, we can't stop climate change now. We probably could have done in the 90s. We can't do it now. It's about how we stop as much as we can by, you know, stopping emissions as soon as we can and how we as a society adapt and and start to get these and i think that's why things like loss and damage are coming up and this idea of reparations and you know transfer of of resources coming up because it's obvious you know what's happening you know countries who haven't polluted are really really look at the pakistan floods being affected the countries who have benefited from this aren't paying their dues you know so let's get into that a little bit more on cop 27 so like you've, we've mentioned already, loss and damage is one of the big topics. Um, and you've explained it a little bit there, but perhaps you could go into a bit of detail about kind of 
the the origins of kind of loss and damage as a concept and kind of where that's going and what that's looking like at COP27 because there's kind of huge uh, kind of divides between kind of what the global north and richer kind of more western countries as it were kind of think should be happening and the global south where you like you said they're experiencing climate change more intensely but haven't admitted yeah. the same amount of emissions historically yeah i mean that's it it's it's basically a call from you know i think it well, don't quote me on this i think sort of originated with even like small islands um and countries really you know, and, and those the debates you hear about kind of sovereignty at stake, you know, whole, whole countries could disappear if you're a low-lying at all country. But for any country, really, loss and damage is those things, it's self-explanatory, really, that adaptation can't prevent. So sometimes they're things that if you had the money, adaptation, which is basically actions you take to prevent the worst impacts of climate change, some loss and damage could be prevented if you had money to adapt, Right. And a lot of countries just don't have the money to install irrigation systems or build flood defenses or, you know, have early warning systems, which are kind of things you might do. But some of this stuff, it doesn't matter. There's limits to adaptation. Do you know what I mean? There's yes. limits to how much yeah. you can protect a city that's, you know, within 50 centimetres elevation above the coast or 100 centimetres mm. above the coast. There's, they're going to be gone. You know, life isn't going to be possible in those places. And you know, and you think places that might get really hot or, you know, places that get increasingly flood damaged and, and the damage is economic, but it's also like cultural things, you know, ways of life, livelihoods, special places. It's not it's not just kind well, of economic see, loss. Like you said, with Pakistan, mm-hmm. the, you know, the millions of people that have been displaced from their homes and, you know, I can't imagine they've very sadly got much else to go back to you. So, you know, it's, just, it's like you said, it's not just economic, it's social and cultural and, yeah, environmental as well. And so, yeah, it's it's how do you, you know, and it's sort of, bla- you know, it's blaringly obvious, how do you, the emissions haven't come from Pakistan. Pakistan needs billions in order to try and even just cope, not thrive, just cope with these changes, you know, and basically as part of the Paris Agreement, the kind of high income countries promised 100 billion a year, their their dollars, that is, they're just about starting to kind of reach that goal. But, you know, that that amount has to increase and increase and increase, really, as as these impacts are going to worsen and worsen. And it's tied up with a lot of like colonial dynamics, you know, and also things like, you know, kind of the global economic system and the debt relations that we have with these countries, you know, these countries are actually in debt to us as well, right? Because we've lent them money, you know, or they're in debt to the international kind of banks. And, you know, that in itself is ridiculous. So it's got a kind of tied in with these kind of more global inequalities. And that's something that the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in its its report this year really tried to draw out that, you know, the kind of historical kind of precedence for what's happening now or precedents like yeah things that were proceeding that have led mm. to this this being the case yeah no that's um yeah it's really fascinating to think about and i suppose thinking from it from kind of like a if i was a uk politician it's quite a hard sell i suppose to uh, the people who are going to be voting you in in a couple of years time if to say right we're going to finance all these countries over here for our historic emissions and we're going to give away all this money at a time where obviously there's a cost of living crisis in the uk and you know all over the world it's quite a difficult economic situation so it's 
it's quite a hard sell for for those countries where like you said it's kind of obvious that there is that injustice and that needs to happen but in reality how does that actually work well funnily enough i was reading a climate outreach um piece uh written for a pakistan newspaper written by amira sawas and her colleague mm. and uh they actually talked about that exactly and, and talked about actually how there's quite something like 68 percent of young people support these climate reparations and so i think it probably depends who you ask but also you know what that article by climate outreach really raised was that why aren't we educating people on this you know of course people aren't going to support it you know with the with the kind of stuff that we read about people from other countries and how we other people from other countries and you know the levels of xenophobia and kind of kind of distance we feel from people in other countries so you know there's a role for kind of you know all sorts of skills and um it's not just skills like awareness and kind of empathy that that are going to have to come with living with climate change you know and some of that's going to be like we need more people to install heat pumps and wind turbines some of it's going to be like okay yeah this is this is a, a problem for the human race how do we start thinking like the human race yeah well i suppose there's that two spe- perspectives isn't there and it's, it's a very global issue in a lot of ways at a time when politics is becoming very kind of national nationalized is that right like a lot of national sentiment uh, around it, and people are kind of looking inwards rather than outwards to the world um, and I suppose picking up on your point about the involvement of kind of young voices who, like you kind of touched on, are generally more in favour of more urgent and more ambitious action on climate change, such as reparations. Um, there's kind of been mixed reports out of COP27 about the involvement of kind of activists and youth. Uh, and so I just wondered, there's obviously these two parts of the COP, like you explained, and I'm guessing they sit more in the trade show side, but do they have an influence in in the negotiations at all? Yeah, it's a good question. I think generally those groups have gone to hold those negotiators to account um, and to try and be, you know, walking those corridors and, and, you know, being that presence there that the negotiators see that, you know, the world is watching them, you know. I think, and what can happen, I think last year because of COVID, room there was kind of limits to the number of people you could have in the room. And I'm not sure, you know, what the reason is um, in Egypt, but you are allowed sort of observers. So not in all the negotiations, but in like the first session when they kind of open up and every country gives their kind of opening gambit. And then at the closing session, when the, the kind of the, the negotiators give their final kind of text that they've agreed on, people can be in that room, observers can be in that room. And so, you know, they can actually be there to hear those things. But yeah, I think some of the dynamics, sometimes people feel frustrated that they they can't even get in to observe those sessions because of whatever logistics or, you know, they're not they're not being given that space to, to have that direct contact. Um, but yeah, without being there, it's hard to know. Yeah. Yeah. What those or whether those are unrealistic, you know, these are negotiations between countries you know, and, 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 you know, maybe it's unrealistic expectations for, you know, on, on how much interaction there can be. But yeah, definitely, you know, youth is there, Indigenous there, civil society are there, you know, Indigenous peoples, civil society are there to really like, you know, make it plain to the negotiators mm. what's at stake. Well, I suppose they have a space. And like you said, it's even just seeing those kind of young people and activists and Indigenous people about it. It's just that almost kind of constant reminder of, oh, 
these people are here and those voices are here and that's something I need to think about is quite important. Well, thank you very much, Helen. It's been fascinating to have you on the podcast and hopefully we can have you on again sometime in the future. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Well, that was so lovely to uh, to chat to Helen the other day. Uh, one of the things that really stood out to me was those two distinct parts of cops that I hadn't really realised. So when they talk about kind of this record number of fossil fuel delegates uh, yes. being at COP and you wonder what influence that has, but actually there's these two distinct parts where you have the negotiations and then you have kind of the trade showy side where there's yes. you know, companies and countries and civil society and indigenous people uh, kind of putting their point forward and that's where they're more present mm. but you still wonder they're still there and what influence they have over the negotiations even oh, if they're not in the room well, that's why they're there is, is to have that is mm. trying to have that influence and that say yeah at the end of the day yeah no absolutely uh, well uh, thank you blobbers for listening to another episode of the green blob uh, and you will get our full analysis of COP27 once it's finished as things are ramping up and we kind of enter those last few kind of tense days of negotiations we'll see whether it can be claimed to be a success or not Uh, but for now have a good week and speak to you next week bye thank you for listening to another episode of the green blob you are evidently very blobbish research for this podcast was done by myself Taran Whitehead and my co-host William Lear music was produced by William Lear and a special thanks to KCL Radio for making all this possible tune in next week for another episode of The Green Blob but in the meantime get in contact at thegreenblobpod at gmail.com or tweet us at greenblob underscore pod bye <laughs>